It was an interesting week. That was kind of discouraging, but we are very thankful that there was a solution. Are you thankful that there's a solution for your real problem? You know, rabies is a problem, but it's not your real problem. It's not my real problem. It's a problem, and, it, and if you get it, it could kill you. But I can guarantee you, if you don't take care of your sin problem, that's going to kill you for eternity. And so God did provide a solution, and we go to His Word to find the way to administer the cure. Right, And so hopefully all of you guys have done that. If you haven't, you need to think about that. And then you need to come talk to us because I can get you the injection. I can lead you the way. I can't do it for you, but, but we know the truth. We know the answer to the problem that we really have as human beings. Okay, so this was an interesting... I say this a lot. Maybe you guys are sick of it. This was an interesting sermon for me to prepare. Um, the last verses, okay, so there it is, my, and that's why I'm calling it, you'll see why in a second, why I'm calling it mining gold from the bottom of the shaft. Okay, oh, that's not the right one yet. Never mind. We'll go back. Oh, we'll leave it here. So this is like the end of the letter. And in fact, I, you know, preached a sermon last week on 23 and 24. And that, I, I love that, those verses. Those are meaty verses. We've been saying them at the end of the, at the service. There is so much there. And I thought, yeah, yeah but if I just do that, am I going to actually be able to get a sermon out of the last four verses there? I mean, it's like the end of the letter. It's like, okay, Mom, I'm going to be home soon. Get my fishing pole back from Cousin Ricky. Make sure my bedroom is ready. Uh, I love you. See you then. And then I went back and looked, and I thought, hold on, hold on, Tim, who are you? God does not mince any words. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't use words he doesn't have a meaning for. And so is there something to be learned from this final closing thing? Is it just that I was just going to throw it on to the end of last week as if, you know, hey, it's an add-on. And then I started preparing the sermon and found out, Man, there's a lot of stuff in here. You may not even get out in time to have a hot potluck. <laughs> because this is true. This is true. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's an amazing, amazing fact. That, that there is something that, that men wrote, but it was supernaturally inspired by God. And God is using that through his Holy Spirit actually to change people's lives. Will you be changed today? Yeah, man, this isn't really a very powerful message. Well, maybe. God wrote it. And he wrote it for you. We'll see. Is there gold at the bottom of the shaft? I found that there was and I thought, okay, i got to get in there and mine this thing and find out what it was that God was trying to tell me in these final verses of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. Okay, so here they are. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all your brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers, and then the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Like I said, I read this 
kind of through as I was preparing 23 and 24, which was kind of the, yeah, boom, great, great conclusion verses. But there's a lot of meat in there. Let's just take them one at a time and see. Brothers, pray for us. And so the word he's using here for brothers has some really good meaning. It's, it's adelphos in the Greek. And it means born of the same womb, coming from the same parents. Or it, it, it later on in used, if, if you're of the same group or gathering of people, and it's as if it's in a family relationship. That's what we have. So he starts out in saying brothers. Now, who, who is saying this? Who is saying this? Paul. Paul wrote it. Paul along with Timothy and Silas. At the beginning of the letter, he introduces himself. That was a long time ago. You probably forgot. But this is Paul writing a letter to the church in Thessalonica. Brothers, family members, those of you that I love like a family, would you pray for us? Would you make supplication to God on our behalf? I'm thinking, what? Paul? The super Christian? Probably the greatest apostle? Wrote about 40% of the New Testament, maybe more. And he wants... A bunch of newbie Christians praying for him? Really? Yeah, in fact, he does. And he's actually commanding it. Brothers, pray for us. So who's he asking to pray for? In this particular instance, right, he's asking for intercessory prayer. He's saying, look, I want you to pray for us as church leaders. We're, the, we're, we're leaders here. So I'm thinking, man, I should probably hang on on this verse a little bit. Um, can, I, can I share with this one? Can I ask you to pray for me? I do, and I know you do, and I hear it all the time, and I am so grateful. Uh, it's pray, you know, because he's told us before in First Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And so prayer itself, how many of you are confused about prayer a little bit? How many of you have ever just kind of wondered what's going on with prayer? Paul's saying, look, I want you to pray for me. That's because what? Uh, you have a better relationship with God than I do? Or somehow if I get enough of you asking God to help me, he will help me? or otherwise he won't help me, or I just want to see how much you care about me. What do you think? Why, why do we pray? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we're going to look at prayer a little bit here. Paul is asking, and clearly God has been working through him in some supernatural ways. And if you read through a lot of the Old Testament or New Testament scripture, you'll see all of the perils that Paul experienced in his ministry. And holy moly, yeah, this guy needs a lot of prayer. And, and there are even some times in there where he admits, we're going to see some of that, um, that he struggles. You know, Paul probably struggled too. 
I know he struggled with some physical infirmities, and I can kind of um, relate with that and think, oh, God, why do I have to have a sore back so much? And, but Paul had some issues, and we think it was with his eyes, and he asked God to take it away, and God said no. Well, he, maybe he should have just got on his little pen and paper and said, hey, churches, pray for me that God will take this thorn in the flesh away, because if I can get enough people praying for me, I can get God to do what I want. Yeah. Sometimes that's what we think. But Paul is asking for prayer, and so why, why might he be doing that? He's, and he's specifically asking for prayer for him and his co-workers, Timothy and Silas. So intercessory prayer, why do we pray? Well, first of all, because we're told to. Man, God, God says do it, right? He says, I command you to do it. I just want you to do it. Uh, I want you to do it in intercessory prayer specifically because you love the people you're praying for. I want you to love them. I want you to love them. I want you to want what's best for them, and I want you to bring them to me. I want you to surrender the situation from your own power and give it to me, the one who can truly affect it. I want to see if when things are bad or things are hard, are you going to try to fix it yourself, or are you going to, in humility and in faith, hand it over to me, the one who can actually fix it? Now, or change it. So faithfulness is believing that God's will is the best. In, in uh, actually, one more here. Hold on. Hmm. I'm not sure what happens next. Okay, here we go. It does work. First of all, then I urge you. Uh, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And that's uh, Paul writing to Timothy, who is actually being asked to pray for here. But, um, so Timothy goes away. Paul sends him out later on, and he says, look, I'm, I'm telling you, I want you to pray uh, for everybody in, in, in authority that God's put in, in there, and make intercessions and thanksgiving for all people. Okay, so, so Paul is telling Timothy that, that we are supposed to be praying for our leaders. And so it is commanded. And then in Romans, likewise, the Spirit... So, so we're going to talk about this first before I go into this Romans. Because this is going to tell us something about prayer that I think is really important. Um, do you really want God's will? We pray, and I believe it's fine and helpful even to pray specifically for specific outcomes. And, and, and people have a need. And, and I know, you know, I, I uh, called Bill, and I said, hey, Bill, I went through the whole rabid bat story. And, oh, oh Tim. Um, and he puts it on a prayer chain because I'd asked him to. And so I, I wanted you to pray about it. But when we pray, and we pray specifically for one another, and we have these things, and somebody's sick, or somebody needs a job, or somebody's car broke down, or whatever, and we pray for a specific outcome, I think what we need to understand, and I know some people would say, ah, that's kind of copping out if you just say, yeah, we'll let God's will be done. No, God does want us to pray specifically, but we have to wonder, or we have to ask ourselves, what is really the answer here. Because sometimes I pray for things and God says no. Sometimes I pray for a specific outcome and 
there's a different outcome. Because probably not hard to recognize or figure out a lot of times my will is not God's will. I wish it was true, but it isn't. And, and so we have to ask ourselves in prayer, and, 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 and in prayer, is Paul saying what? Pray for us so that I won't be shipwrecked, so that I won't be beaten, so that I won't be stoned and left for dead, so that I won't have hardship, and I won't be cold, and I won't be poor, and I won't go without food, and I won't be lonely. Because he was all those things. But he said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've died to myself, and I belong to God. What I really want you to pray for is God's will, and that's what Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, let his will be done on earth in your life as it is in heaven. And so when, when, when Paul is asking them to pray, I'm pretty sure what he really wants is I want you to intercede on our behalf so that God's will will be done because I know that I personally still have issues. Uh, does prayer change things? Are, are there some things that God only gives us when we pray? I think so. Are there things that God is not going to give us no matter how many people pray? Yes. Are there things that God says, uh, I'm going to give you that, but not yet? Yeah. And so I think, and maybe this relates to the sermon, but I think it's really important that we understand or that we resist the temptation to think that if, if I just pray, I can somehow harness the power of God to get what I want. Do you really want to be in control of your life? No, you don't. Um, we try it. But what we really want, what we should really want, is God's will. So, guess what? God knows that that's a problem for us. God knows that we oftentimes ask for stuff that he doesn't want to do. And so, and I, so I always chafe at this, or a lot of times chafe at this, when people say, oh, I'm so, so glad for answered prayers, or, you know, this, oh, look, another answered prayer. And I'm thinking, hey, man, God answers all my prayers. He just doesn't answer them the way I want. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says wait. Sometimes he says yes, but he answers them all. That's not the, the issue isn't just I'm waiting for answered prayer. If you're saying I'm just waiting for the time when my will lines up with God's will, that's the only one I appreciate. No. Prayer is God saying, look, bring it to me in faith, in humility, but trust the fact that I have an outcome that I want to happen that's best. Oftentimes it'll be confusing to you. Sometimes it'll anger you. Sometimes it'll get you frustrated and impatient, but nonetheless, trust me, I heard it. I hear your prayer. So Paul is asking them to pray for him, knowing this, because guess what? Paul also wrote this one. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What does he mean in our weakness? Our weakness is, in fact, that we are selfish, and we pray the wrong way because we want what we want instead of what God wants. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us, or for us, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts 
knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Do you understand that that's happening? That, that God is fixing your prayers on the way up? He honors the fact that you have something specific that you're praying for, but he loves you so much that he is changing those things to line up with his will. Hopefully, when you let go of it, you say that. And again, I, I know people say, oh, that's a cop-out, well, you know, because at the end of the prayer, I say, yeah, whatever, this is what we want, God, but your will be done. But no, that's what God wants you to pray. That means that you have a trust in God that what he is going to do is indeed what needs to be done. And oftentimes, we're not going to get what we want. But I, for one, am very thankful that I'm not in control of the world or even my own life because I know I am broken and selfish. And Paul himself understands that fact. You see it in Romans chapter 7. We talked about this before. For This is Paul in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I don't understand what I'm doing. I, don't, I do what I don't want to do. Uh, no, I do not do what I want to do. But I, instead, I do the very thing that I hate. Now that if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that's dwelling in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but the, not the ability to carry it out. For I do not want I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So here's Paul, super Christian, writing to, to, writing to the, the church saying, pray for me, because guess what? I know I'm still broken. I know there's parts of me that are still broken. I know that the very thing that I would love to do, I don't do many times. So we all need prayer. Paul knows this, though. He knows that he's still broken. But he also knows that leadership in a church is hard. He knows that life is hard. He knows that his flesh is relentlessly trying to lead him astray. He knows that he's still broken. And he knows for sure that what he wants is God's will to be done here as it is in heaven. And so there he's asking for this church to pray. All right. Greet all brothers with a holy kiss. Um, stand up. And do, no, I'm just, just kidding. I think we would get in trouble these days with this. Now, you know, COVID notwithstanding. You have to understand what's, what he's talking about. First of all, it's, it's greet, and that, and that is a, a very interesting word, and it, and it really is to embrace with open arms, to enfold around someone and really bond. So greet, bond one another, brothers, the same word again, family members with a holy kiss. 
So the holy kiss and the holy part of it uh, has, has some meaning there, and it's sacred or morally pure. Sacred or morally pure. So this is not some sort of a romantic, erotic kind of a thing. This is not, hey, come on in and let's just, you know, we'll start making out. No. Um, this was God saying, and this was a custom at the time. When someone would come in, you probably see different countries do this. You know, they give you the It's either kiss on the cheek or kiss on the forehead was what was popular in this culture at the time. But it was a custom among family or very close friends. Okay, this was the custom of the time. If you're a family and you come and someone comes to your house and their family, you give them, you know, you see this on, on movies and stuff, mostly European countries. You know. Okay. So it isn't about the kiss. It's acknowledging when we come together in a very real way, like we did when we got up and greeted one another. We don't kiss each other anymore, but I saw the excitement in your faces. I heard the joy in your voices to be able to greet one another as family. And if you're visitors, you're family anyway. I don't care. And so... So God is saying, you need to recognize you live in family and greet one another like they were your blood family or better, oftentimes better. Yeah. We share this bond that sometimes we don't have with our, with our blood family. That they can, if, they don't, if they're not followers of Christ, there's something, a piece missing, and it's hard to have the intimacy sometimes. But here we can have that. You guys were all born from other mothers than me, but we're probably closer together than many of my extended family. You, I, you know, we, Jeff says it sometimes, I say it, you guys are my forever family, and this is family time when I come here, and it's my happy place. Hopefully it is for you. God wants that. He's saying, greet each other, and here's the funny thing about this. This was a very segregated society. And it was layered, and there were all these things. There were rich and poor, and they did not interact. And there was Gentile and Jew, and they did not interact. And there was slave and free, and, and there, was a, there was definitely a pecking order. There was male and female, and, and they had some very stringent rules. And guess what? Scripture tells us, no, in Christ, there's no longer rich or poor, male or female. Slave or free, Jew or Gentile, you are one in Christ. And so not only is he telling them, understand that they're family, but recognize that, that everybody is on equal footing. Now, they don't all have the same responsibility, and, and yes, they still have to be submissive to one another, but when you come together, you're one in, in God, you're one in Christ. And that was something that was not popular, in fact, and, and, in fact, it's addressed in, in Scripture. Paul is sensitive to it, but the Romans did not like this. You are turning upside down the structure of our society, the pecking order and the social rules. And, it was, and it, at times it caused problems. It caused problems in some people's marriages. It's like, hey, man, you've always had this role, and, and as a woman, you need to know your place. And so Paul does go on later on to say, don't take advantage of your freedom in Christ. Uh, recognize that you know, we're not here to cause disorder, but understand when you come together, and I want you to signify that with a holy kiss that we're family. Now, with family comes what? Responsibility. Yeah. Nobody riding and hiding. 
How many, how many of you grew up when your parents said, nope, no, you don't have to do nothing. Just come hang out with us. We'll take care of you. Now you just sit back there. I'll bring you dinner. Don't worry. It doesn't raise very responsible children. And so God says, yeah, we got responsibility. So families are good. It's good. And we want you to love one another and, and greet one another. But recognize then as part of the family, uh, you now don't belong to yourself. You belong to the family. It says that in Romans chapter 12. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to you guys. Don't abuse me. But do we have that attitude when we come in here? I belong to you. You belong to me. The gifts that God gave me, he gave them to me to help you. And the gifts God gave you, he gave you to help the rest of us. And we're responsible to use those to one another and to God. Nobody gets a free pass. I mean, this is for God's glory and your good that you take what God's given you as a family member or a body member. He describes that way in, in different places, in, uh, in Corinthians and, and even in Romans, that, that the body, you know, it's like a body, but it is a family. But each member has a part. And so recognize that when you get to take advantage of the joy I saw when you were greeting one another as family members, that with that comes some responsibility. Okay. Now, we're going to move on before I run you too, too long. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And I thought, well, what in the world's going on here? I put you under oath before the Lord. Uh, do you want to face God when you don't do this? No, I don't think so. But I think what he's really trying to say, if we could go back to that first verse that I had up there in Hebrews chapter 12. The Word of God is, is important. We talked about it in the little kid's object lesson. The Word of God is supernatural in your life if you allow it. And so he's saying, look, you can go, I'm going to put you under oath. Because he went back in, in, uh, in, in, back in Thessalonians before, he talked about this and he said... Um, we also, actually chapter 2, verse 13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, in you as believers. And so he had thanked them earlier on in the letter. Hey, when we spoke, he recognized at the time he was speaking scripture. And so he's writing this down, and he's saying, look, there is an authority here that goes beyond me. I am putting you under oath before God. This is the word, very word of God. And I don't know how he understood that, but somehow he did through the Holy Spirit that the things he was writing was Scripture. Village Missions has only a couple things that they really get behind. One of them is preach the word. And I just kind of thought, well, what else are you going to do? How many of you watch TV and see preachers on TV? We watch, we watch these three shows. Andy Griffith, Walton's, um, what's, what's the other one where they always, oh, and Little House on the Prairie, okay. And, and Carol just loves it when, the, when they show them in church because the sermons are about three minutes long and rarely do they have anything to do with the Bible. And those are good conservative shows. I've been in churches where they give you messages, make you feel good, and maybe they make sense. But I believe that this time is sacred. I have nothing 
to give you on my own. I have nothing that is going to change your life or fix your heart or give you direction or encouragement. I, I don't. The only thing I have to share with you is what God gives me from his word. And I'm trying. I'm trying to see, okay, God, what, what is it that's in there? And so I read these things, and I, I read them over a period of time, over a week, and I'm waiting for God to speak to me. And sometimes he doesn't speak to me until, until right before, the, you know, like Saturday, and, and, and finally the sermon, okay, this is the message you want me to give. And, but correct me, stop me, rebuke me if necessary if I get away from the Word of God. Because there's nothing else that's life-changing. I, I, I can't do it. I, you know, I, it doesn't make any difference how eloquent I could be or maybe I have a, you know, a great preaching style, whatever. None of that matters. The Word of God does the work in your life. And so Paul knows this, and he's saying, look, there's a lot of things you guys could talk about. There's a lot of things that you guys could be dealing with in your lives as new Christians in a very hostile pagan culture. Read this. Under the oath of God, read this because it is life-changing words directly from the mouth of God. And that's why we come. We come to have our lives changed by the very words of God. You don't have to wait to hear it from me. Hopefully, you're spending time in the Word every day. If you are tired of the way your life is working as far as where you're at in your Christian walk, spend time in God's Word. Spend time in God's Word expecting to be changed. Spend time in God's Word looking for the message that God has for you. You have His Holy Spirit if you are a believer. His Holy Spirit will help you find the gold in his word, that he intends for your life. So even though Paul's saying, look, read this letter, he's also giving us a very clear message that the words of Scripture are important. That's why here. Now, occasionally I will do some topically related sermons, but I still am looking at the truth of Scripture. But I like this the best expository preaching where you just take the word and preach your way through it. And so, except in very rare occasions, that's what you're going to get from me because I believe it's the best way to keep Tim out of the way. Otherwise, it's easy for, easier for me to come up with some of my own conclusions. Okay, so Paul is telling them, I put you under oath, read this because it matters. Now, the very final one. Oh, we're going to see this in the... I think it's the last song. And you think this is a throw-in. It's just like at the beginning. You know, he says, And grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, you know, servants of Jesus Christ our Lord. Ah, just a throw-in. It's just a salutation. Christianity battled a long time, and in fact, most Christians battle continually, as do I at times, to understand the role of grace. 
It's kind of a funny thing. <clears throat> Christianity fought long and hard to come up with the conclusion that salvation from God is by grace alone through faith alone. And in, in this grace that he's talking about, he has a particular message in mind, and it is this, unmerited favor of God where we receive what we did not deserve because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And then he's saying, may it be an immediate possession to you. May you participate in it. May it be in your presence always. That's what that verse is saying. The funny part of us as human beings is we often have two responses in our Christian walk. <clears throat> Things are going really good. We forget about grace and think it's us that's pretty cool. Things are going really bad and we forget about grace and we wallow in despair and shame and guilt instead of recognizing how important grace was not only in your salvation but in your everyday walk with Jesus Christ because we have a tendency to go in both of those places Things are going well. We're making progress. God is working. And we forget that it's the grace of God that allows us to have the Holy Spirit in us that's doing that work. And we start to think we're pretty cool. Or we go the other way and we're, we're failing. And we just, instead of taking it to Jesus, we wallow in our own guilt and shame and we hide things from others and hide things from God because we don't recognize that grace is there when we fall. I don't normally do this, but I want to read you something. I've been, I've been, <clears throat> I've mentioned a few things, and some people here know. I've had some tough times in the in the in the previous months. Um, a lot of different things going on. And I happened to find, and I can't remember if somebody gave it to me, but I, th I think I heard it mentioned, and I, so I went ahead and ordered it. But it's a book um, of devotions by Paul David Tripp. And it's called Early, I think it's called Early Morning Mercies. Let me read you one. And again, I, I, I love, <laughs> stick to the Word of God, and this is about Scripture, and, but it's going to give you some ideas of some of the issues we have with grace. And so this was his devotion, and I read one every morning, and it really helps me to think. It's, all, it's what we all are. We are failures. Own it. It'll be good for you. There is not a day in any of our lives when we don't lay down empirical evidence that we are failures. Stop right here. And last week I was telling you about the impossible puzzle and what should our response be when we inevitably fail because, you know, our responses can go in a different ways and, and, and many of them are not helpful or godly. So he's, he's saying this. Maybe it's an unkind word, an ugly thought, or an ungodly desire. Maybe it's the moment of selfish envy or unbridled greed that we have. Maybe it's in a moment when we experience pride or we have to be the center of attention or steal someone else's glory. Perhaps it's an array of gluttony or in our acts of desire or lust. Maybe it's in an instance where our hearts are cold or we lack sympathy for people who are suffering. 
Maybe it shows itself when we are jealous of beauty or power that someone else has. Maybe it's revealed when we surrender our hearts once again to some earthly idol instead of Christ. Perhaps it shows itself when we take what is not ours or we fail to give what's been called us to give to others. Somehow, in some way, we all do it every day. We fall short of God's righteous standard. We all fail to be what he has created and very clearly called us to be in Scripture. Now, when confronted with this failure, and you will be if you're at all humble and honest, you have only three choices. You can commit to being an evidence hider, working to convince yourself that you really are okay when you're not. You can comfort yourself with plausible arguments for your own righteousness, giving ease to your conscience. Or in the face of failure, you can wallow in your guilt and your shame, beating yourself up because you didn't do better, and committing yourself to work hard next time or hide your failure from God and others. Or in the brokenness and grief of conviction from the Holy Spirit, you cannot run away from God but run to him. You can run into the light of his holy presence, utterly unafraid and filled with the confidence that although he is righteous and holy and perfect, you are not. But he will never turn you away. You can do this because your standing, your identity with God has never been based on your own righteous performance, but totally based on the perfect obedience of your Savior. Because you are in him, you are counted by God as righteous, and therefore you are accepted into his holy presence forever and ever. Yes, you are called to live a holy life, but your way of living has not been and never will be the basis of your standing with God. You can bow at his feet and confess your sins, knowing that by grace you will be received and not punished. Because the righteous Jesus took the full brunt of the penalty for your sins so that you never, ever would have to bear it. In Ephesians 3.12, God reminds us that in Christ we can have boldness and confidence through our faith in him so that even when we fail, we can come up to the throne and say, Abba, Father. So Paul is ending his letter here, telling them at the end how important grace is in their life, both for their salvation, but also for their sanctification and the inevitable failures that we all have as we walk the walk. But knowing that grace and grace alone gives us a spot at the table forever. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for that. Your word is so amazing, and it amazes me, even when I I don't understand it all. Um, I'm not ready to preach on numbers yet, but uh, you had some really great meat in here today, some gold at the bottom of the shaft. And so, Father, help us to take that. Will we drink? We came, and the horse was led to water. Lord, change our lives through your word. And we thank you and we praise you.
for your patience and your holiness and your grace. In the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.